I should like to call your attention this morning to the message of that 63rd Psalm, which we read at the beginning. Let me read again the first three verses. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. I say I'm anxious to call your attention to the message of the entire psalm. The psalm is a song, kind of poem, and it therefore has a message which is complete in and of itself. And it's always essential, in a sense, to take a psalm as a whole. We can, of course, as we have often done, pause and concentrate upon and emphasize particular parts. But we must always remember the whole. And it's quite obvious in the case of this psalm that there is a complete and entire message. Now, this is uh, one of the, these great and glorious psalms. They're all wonderful. And there is a sense in which it is almost foolish to differentiate between psalm and psalm. But this psalm has always been a great favorite with God's people. This was the psalm that used to be used as a morning hymn with some of the early Christians in the eastern parts, what we now call the Middle East. This was their morning hymn. It was the favorite hymn of one of the great preachers, one of the greatest preachers of the early centuries, John Chrysostom golden-mouthed orator or preacher, as he was generally known as. This was his favorite psalm. And we are told also that one of the great leaders of the Protestant Reformation, Theodore Beza, invariably, when he'd find himself unable to sleep in bed at night, he would invariably recite and repeat this psalm to himself. And though he couldn't sleep, he was filled with a spirit of joy and of rejoicing. Uh, thus, uh, you see that it's a psalm, obviously, that uh, speaks to God's people, as spoken to them throughout the running centuries. Now, it's uh, generally agreed that this psalm of David was probably written at the time of the insurrection of his own son, Absalom. You remember the story of the insurrection of Absalom, how Absalom, for various reasons, worked up a rebellion against his own father. And David was compelled to go out of Jerusalem, to vacate Jerusalem, and in a sense even to flee for his life. And at a given point in that exodus from Jerusalem, David and his company found themselves in a wilderness. David was a man who was at that moment full of perplexities and difficulties. People had proved treacherous to him, who had promised to follow him and so on, his situation, in a sense, couldn't be worse. He, As he says, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee, in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Those were the circumstances, actually, in a literal physical sense, as far as David was concerned. But, of course, this was still more true, as I'm indicating, in a spiritual sense. 
And what we've got in this psalm is an account of how David dealt with himself in those circumstances. Here's this man of God, hemmed in, as it were, in a wilderness, with all the trials, difficulties, problems, and perplexities. And he tells us, we should thank God for this, how he faced it all, how he dealt with himself, what he did, how he reacted. And thereby, I say, he teaches us, as he has taught God's people throughout the centuries, how we should deal with ourselves also when we find ourselves in a like state and position. Now, this is true of many individuals at the present time. People in trouble and trial, having grievous problems, everything seems to be against them. It's equally true of the Christian church as a whole. These are evil, difficult days for the Christian church. In this country, we are but a little remnant in a kind of wilderness of paganism, with enemies set against us round and about us. Now, here is a lesson, I say, as to how we should conduct ourselves and how we should handle ourselves at such a time and in such a situation. The method of the psalm is typical, characteristic of all the psalms. That is, in a sense, the wonderful thing about them. They're virtually nearly all saying exactly the same thing, but they vary according to the circumstances. The presentation varies, but the method is always very much the same. Now, let's approach it in this way. A time of trouble, a time of difficulty, a time of trial, is always a testing time. And what it really does is to test where we really are and what we really have. I want to approach this psalm this morning from that particular angle and standpoint. Times of trouble, I say, and of trial and of difficulty, above everything else, test our profession of the Christian faith. If you really want to know whether you're a Christian or not, the simplest way, the most direct way, always, is to discover what you're like when you're in trouble, when things go against you. That's the time when you really discover the value of what you believe. The time of affluence and prosperity, when the sun is shining and everything is going well, that doesn't test our profession. But the moment things go wrong, and you're in a state of perplexity, then you will know exactly the value of what you claim to believe. Alas, it's possible for us to have an intellectual belief in these things. This Bible contains an incomparable system of truth. Merely looking at it from the standpoint of philosophy, there is nothing superior to the Bible. It's an old book, and it's a very wise old book. It's a book that knows men, it knows life, it has an understanding. There is no profounder wisdom. And so there are many who have come to it and have taken it up simply from the standpoint of its teaching and its wisdom in that way, something intellectual. And indeed, unfortunately, it's possible for us even to accept with our minds and in a purely theoretical, detached, intellectual manner, even the Christian way of salvation. In a sense, it is reasonable to do so. The system is such a complete one. 
And there are people who have been brought up in the church and in the atmosphere of these things and have received instruction and they've taken it in. They've accepted it. There are many who say that they can't recall a time when they didn't believe it. Always have believed it. Well, that's all right. But as I say, the real thing we want to discover is this. Is it only in the mind? Is it only something theoretical? Now, the, the quickest way, the direct way always to discover the real value of what you claim as your profession of the Christian faith is to know how you react and how you behave in a time of difficulty, trial or trouble. For instance, the danger, there is another danger, the danger of depending, as it were, upon the house of God and upon the services. David puts that point here, he says, uh, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. But now he wasn't in the sanctuary. He'd had to escape from Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness. There is this constant danger. Do we depend only upon the church and their services and their fellowship and all these things? Now, here's the test, I say. What do you like when you're taken ill, if you like, and are lying on your back in a bed in your home or in a hospital? Don't go to church. Don't, miss, don't meet with God's people. And you're in difficulty. You may be worried even as to whether you're going to live or not. You don't know. The whole thing is uncertain. Or you can think of many other similar trials that may come to us. Bereavement and sorrows and loss or disappointment. The various slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. These things come to us sooner or later. Every one of us will eventually be in a wilderness. We've been in wildernesses already. Some may be in a wilderness here this morning. I say, it's certain we're all going to find ourselves in a wilderness because this is a passing world and there is a final wilderness. We've all got to go through it. Now, here's the test. What are we like when we find ourselves in some such wilderness? Here is the supreme test of our whole profession of the Christian faith. Here is the thing which shows whether we are truly Christian or not. Well, now then, let's consider these tests as to whether we are truly Christian or not, as they're suggested to us by this great song. What are the tests? Well, let me just note them as they're put before us here. The first is this. The true men of God, the true Christian, like David, is always driven by adversity to God. Here's our first test. Adversity always drives the true believer to God. Here he is in trouble, you see, in the wilderness. This is his reaction. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek. Now, this is a tremendously important point. You will find many people who uh, have always thought that they're Christian and have always been regarded by everybody as Christian. When something goes wrong with them, either personally or to their loved ones or in circumstances, their immediate reaction is to say, why has God done this to me? They turn away from God. They're annoyed. They're filled with questions, with doubts, and with grumbles. Many of them even give up their open profession. They say there's nothing in it. If God is God, why am I being allowed to suffer in this way and manner. Many have left the Christian church. They've given up even some, any pretense of a profession of the Christian faith. Like Job's wife, 
They say to themselves and to one another, let's curse God. What's the value of this thing if he lets us endure and suffer in this way and manner? Now, this is, this is something which unfortunately is quite common. Adversity in the case of these false professors always makes them turn their backs upon God, makes them go away from God, makes them annoyed with God makes them feel that God is dealing with them unkindly and unfairly. They give it up. They go away from him. But, you see, the true believer does the exact opposite. And that is why this is such a subtle and such a thoroughgoing test. The immediate reaction of the believer in a time of trouble is to draw near unto God. To whom shall we go but unto thee, says the believer. In the words, again, of the psalmist. And you will find throughout these psalms that these men, often perplexed and in grievous positions, oh, they always turn. They're like the needle of that compass. It, it may flicker and vary, but it's always settling there on that fixed point. God, early will I seek thee. Now, my dear friends, these things I'm going to put before you this morning, they're simple. But they're very profound. And we all know in our hearts, you can't argue about these matters. You know immediately. There's no need of any demonstration or proof. That's the wonderful thing about life, isn't it? There is a kind of instinctive reaction. And the instinctive reaction of the Christian is to turn to God. Invariably. Very well. Let's just leave that at that and go on to the second part. The Christian not only instinctively turns to God in this way at such a time. He feels that he has a right to do so. He turns to God because he knows him. The Christian, you see, in perplexity doesn't get down on his knees and pray to whatsoever gods may be. That's how many do. It's a cry into empty space, as it were. A cry in the void. They don't know God. Most people still, in spite of their godlessness and irreligion, when in trouble, they offer a prayer, as they put it. But they, 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 it's, a des it's an act of desperation. They don't know what they're doing. They're at their wit's ends. They're just uh, hoping against hope, as it were, crying out, uh, not knowing what else they can do. Whatever gods may be, doesn't it? Neither are they, does the true believer pray, like so many do, to some god who's in the distance somewhere, some remote god, some great eternal being perhaps, but someone who is so remote from this world that rarely he doesn't know, he doesn't understand, and in any case he can't be interested in any particular individual and in the minutiae and the details of one's personal life. So they cry out to some God who's far away in the distance, somewhere in the vague hope that he may hear and he may be pleased to answer. That isn't the Christian at all. It's quite different. Listen to David. Here is the language always of the true children of God. Look how it opens out. And you know, here's an expressive exclamation. Oh, God. This oh. No one ever uses that. 
except he or she is a child of God. I know that the world in its blasphemy utters these two words. Doesn't know what it's saying. It's an expletive. But here the psalmist offers it from the very depth of his being. Oh God. You sense the feeling. You sense the whole man involved in it. He turns to the one whom he knows is going to listen. He flees to him. And further, you see, he is able to say, Thou art my God. Not merely God as such, but my God in particular. Now, we closed on this note last Sunday morning, but I've just got to repeat it and to emphasize it again because it is so important. You remember that great hymn of Thomas Oliver's, Hail Abram's God and mine, my God. In other words, there is the consciousness of this personal relationship. He doesn't go doubtfully and uncertainly. He knows that God is his God and he is God's child. He turns as a child, turns to his father with the same instinctive movement. No query, no doubt, no uncertainty. He knows the way is open. He's traveled so often upon it so he can at times utter nothing but his own. Well, let's quote again the great apostle on this. Likewise, he says, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we are. But the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And you know there is all that content of meaning in this O as it's uttered by the child of God. O God, thou art my God. He goes therefore into the presence of God with this certainty. That's another way whereby we can test ourselves. But let's go on to the next step. He says, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee. In a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Now, I, I want to emphasize this. Because this is not expressive of a vague desire. It isn't that. It's about the profoundest feeling that one is ever capable of. So the man that, this man approaches God not in, the, in a sense that um, he decides on the whole to turn to God. Let's try prayer. Having done everything else that he can. Neither does he have to persuade himself to do so. He doesn't have to take himself to task as it were and work it out and arrive at a decision. He does so, not only instinctively, as I say, but he does so with the whole longing of his being. Now, you get this repeatedly, of course, in the Psalms, as the heart panteth after the water brooks. It's the same idea. So, thirsteth my soul after thee, the living God. It's everywhere here, as it is everywhere in the New Testament, and as it is everywhere in the literature of God's, concerning God's people throughout the running centuries. In other words, and this is one of these absolutes, it is the greatest desire of this man to feel the presence of God 
and to know that he's with him and that he is looking down upon him. Now, the psalmist, you see, and this is the wonderful thing, was more concerned about this even than he was about his circumstances. He is in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. He's surrounded by enemies. He knows that some very able men are conspiring with Absalom to bring about not only his defeat but probably his death in order that Absalom may become king. His situation couldn't be more precarious. But you see, his concern is not so much with the circumstances. Naturally, he's concerned about them. But that's not his biggest concern. It's not his deepest concern. The real desire of this man's heart, and he puts it therefore in this expressive language, is my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh, the whole man. There's nothing about him that isn't in this way longing and thirsting for the presence of God. Now this is a mark, I say, always of the child of God. The desire for an intimate knowledge of God the Father is the biggest thing and the most important thing in his life. It is of greater importance to him than anything else whatsoever. And therefore he is more concerned about it. And I'm emphasizing that it is this desire to have this personal certainty. Now, David, obviously, in the wilderness, uh, believed in God. He's not asking uh, that his uh, faith may be strengthened. What David wants is this. He wants to experience God in that wilderness, as he had so often experienced him in the temple, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Now, David used to go to the sanctuary, as every godly person does, because God has promised to meet with his people. And as David reminds us again in a very similar psalm, the 84th psalm, grace and glory, he says, uh, are found in the house of God. That's why he wants to be there. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. That's the place where God has given the manifestations of himself and has come and has met his people. And there they've been thrilled together. And David had often had this experience, this personal experience of God, this knowledge that God was directly and immediately concerned. Not a general belief in God. That's permanent. David is here longing for just this assurance that God is still with him and that he will never leave him nor forsake him. He wants to experience the highest that he's ever experienced in the temple. He wants that in the wilderness. And so I would emphasize both aspects of this matter. The Christian, the true believer, not only believes in God, he not only prays to God, this God in whom he believes, he is a man who has experienced God. He knows God. That's the thing David is emphasizing here. He wants this personal certainty, this personal assurance, this intimation that God is still with him. Now, this can never be emphasized too much. This is, in a sense, the difference between religion and true faith. You can take up religion. You can never create this. You can't take this up. 
This is something that God does to you. This is something God gives, gives you, obviously. That's why David is seeking it. That's why he is crying out for it. And that's the thing he wants. And I'm emphasizing that this is the thing that the true child of God wants above everything else. Tell me, thou art mine, O Savior, grant me an assurance clear. The obvious illustration from the natural realm brings it out. The one who loves always wants to know that he or she is loved in return. Doesn't take it for granted, wants it to be stated. And so does the child of God. And David, moreover, realizes, as he tells us, that this is not something that is confined to the sanctuary. And this is a very wonderful thing. I, I've known it in the sanctuary, says David, but I know that it's equally possible here. So you see, you're not entirely dependent upon the house of God. You can experience God as much when you're lying on a solitary bed in your home or in the hospital. When you're absolutely isolated, he can be with you there as he can be with you in the, tab in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the church. Oh, this was a lesson that the children of Israel were often slow to learn. And do you remember the woman of Samaria arguing with our Lord? You say, she said, you Jews say that one must worship in Jerusalem. We say you worship in this mountain. And our Lord says, the day is coming when you shall worship neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem. God is spirit. And they that worship him shall worship him in spirit and in truth, wherever you are. And the longing of the Christian is, in all circumstances and situations, just to know that God is with him and is looking upon him. It is the enjoyment of God, in a personal sense, at all times and in all places. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee. Now, my friends... Is this true of us? If you're not in a wilderness, is this true of you? It should be true at all times. It is true of the child of God, even when everything has gone against him. But it is obviously meant to be much more true when things are going well with us and when the sun is shining down upon us. Can we say honestly this morning, My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee. I say again that if that isn't your experience now, well, what are you likely to be like when you find yourself in that wilderness? But let's go on to the next test, which is again still more thorough. David takes us a step further. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Now here is a tremendous statement. You see, to the true believer, God's loving kindness is the most precious thing in life. You can't qualify this statement. He makes it as an absolute statement. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. Now this is really tremendous, isn't it? And of course it is, therefore, of necessity. The test of our whole position and profession this morning. This is the thing which is found running right through the Bible. The man of God wants this presence of God, this felt realization 
of God's loving kindness. He wants this above everything else. That was the difference in a sense between Abram and Lot. Lot had his eye on the plains, the cities of the plain, the fruitfulness of the plain. Abram has his eye on God and is content with the mountains. And so on, you'll find it running through the whole of the scripture. I read that portion from the first chapter of Philippians at the beginning because there you've got that great statement of it by the great apostle, to me to live is Christ. That's life. That is, to me, everything in life. Christ, to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Or as he puts it again in the third chapter, in the tenth verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. One thing, says the apostle, I do. This is the whole object of his life and living to know him. Now, what he means is this. Here he is again, don't forget his circumstances, in this most dangerous and precarious position. But you see, David says, I, I'm not so much concerned about my personal safety. I'm not ultimately concerned about going on living. I'm not just concerned about escaping from this awful predicament and the malice even of my own son who has risen against me in rebellion. Your loving kindness is more important to me, says David, even than life itself. To have this intimate knowledge of God's love and God's concern is more important to him than to go on living. And therefore I hold this before you again as one of these profound and fundamental tests. We're all in this uncertain world. This world that is always on the edge of some crisis, always some final catastrophe looming up, temporarily disappearing, but it'll come back. We thank God for the relief this morning that things are better than they were last Sunday morning in an international sense, but these respites, they're only temporary and passing, my dear friends. The whole world is a wilderness and uncertain. And here's the test. What is to us the most important thing this morning? Is it just to go on living you know, these poor people who seem to spend the whole of their time in talking about the atomic bomb. To them, you see, just continuing to exist in this world is everything. And death is the final calamity. Prolonging life. That's their interest, really, in what they call peace. They don't mean peace. They mean an absence of war. The thing is so tragic. They have nothing but this life, this world. Everything is in this world for them. And anything that threatens existence in this world, that's awful. That's the last calamity. But not so to the Christian. Not so to the true child of God. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Why? Well, I've already anticipated part of the answer. Let me give you a negative first. You see, the true man of God, he knows... And this is his constant realization that this is a passing world. It's a transient life. Now this, again, it sounds so obvious and so simple. And yet I sometimes think it is the, the key to the whole present situation. The world today is doing its utmost, I say, to forget this profound fact that life is transient and passing. Listen to the author of the epistle to the Hebrews putting it in his own wonderful way. Here have we no continuing city. But we seek one to come. That's the Christian. 
This is the victory that overcometh the world. The world will always make you concentrate upon it. It's doing so this morning. In its newspapers, in its books, its journals, in its entertainments, in its everything. It's always fixing attention on this life and on this world. And it regards it as morbidity to do anything else. That's the whole fallacy concerning men in sin. But the Christian knows that. So he doesn't put existence and continuing in this life first. That isn't the chief thing with him. Because he knows that at best it's only temporary. You're taken ill. You wonder whether you're going to get well. And then you do get well. Thank God. And then you forget, don't you? You forget what you felt like at that awful moment. But that's where you show yourself to be a poor fool and a man who doesn't know how to think. You've only had a temporary respite. It's only a postponement. Now, the Christian faces all this. That's the wisdom of the Bible. Here are we no continuing city. Very well, then he doesn't put mere perpetuation of existence in this world in the first and in the central place. But he has a second reason for saying this, and that is that he knows that life in this world can never really satisfy. Now, here again, we must examine ourselves. The man of God, I say, is a man who can say quite honestly, I have never found complete satisfaction in this world as such. Never. Oh, I've been interested, I've been attracted, I've been helped, I've been moved, I've had enjoyment. But there's always been a residual longing. Something in me. Crying out for an ampler ether, a diviner air. Some longing, some intimations, some feelings, some aspirations. Oh, I don't know what it is, but the world has never been able to satisfy me. He knows that life at its best and at its highest has never been able to satisfy him completely. And partly, of course, because it's a world of trials and a world of troubles, a world of tribulations. In the world, says Christ, you shall have tribulation. The cares of this life, the things that come unexpectedly, they're there here, and you can't evade them, you can't avoid them. We all know this when we stop to think about it, but the devil keeps us so busy that we don't think, and then in trouble we don't know what to do. But the Christian has faced it all out. And he says, life never has been able truly to satisfy me. But of course... He's gone even further than that. He has discovered that the world is mainly vain and empty. At its best, at its highest. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. Oh, his boasted pomp and show. The Christian sees through all this. He's no longer carried away by it. There was a time when he wasn't a Christian and these things were everything to him. But he's now been able to see through it all. That there's an element of decay. Moth and rust of corrupt and thieves break through and steal. The world at its best. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. That's the world. And he sees through the emptiness that is involved in it all. And he knows that it's Variable and ever-changing. And so he has come to the conclusion that the great apostle had come to in this tabernacle that we do groan, being burdened, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon 
with our house which is from heaven. Now, the men of God, the true men of God like David, therefore, has come to see that mere living, mere existence, merely going on, merely escaping your enemies, getting out of this hole, this trouble, that's not everything, that's not the first thing. No, no. He has seen life steadily, seen it whole, he's seen it as it is. He's no longer deluded by the glamour and the pretense of life. That's the negative. But oh, it's the positive that makes him say this. There are many people who have seen through life and they've ended in cynicism. And there are many cynics in this modern world. Many intelligent men have got enough intelligence to see the vain show. And they retire out of it. They've got nothing else. But they say, I can't get excited about this. I'm only fooling myself. I'm enjoying it now, but when I get older, I won't be able to. So they say, what's the point of it all? They can see through it, but they've got nothing else, so they end in cynicism and in a kind of despair. But this man says, thy loving kindness is better than life. Why? Well, not only because he knows the truth about life, but because he knows the loving kindness. It's positive. What's he mean? Well, he means this. Why does he thirst for God above everything else? Why is he more concerned about this than even his circumstances and conditions? Why is he after this loving kindness? Well, the answer is simply this, my friends, because God is who and what he is. That I, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, the glory of God, to be in the presence of God. There's nothing that's comparable to this. It's very difficult to put this into words. I'm driven again and forced to fall back upon the simple human analogy. If you know anything of what it means to be in love, you know this. That you desire to be in the presence of the object of your love more than the whole world. What's the lovesick person? The lovesick person is a person who is unhappy because he's separated from the one he loves. He's got his money still, he's got his books, he's got his house, he's got his friends, but he's lovesick, he's unhappy. Why? Oh, the loved one isn't with him. Offer him the whole world, it's useless to him. He wants the loved one. This is more value to him than the whole of life. Multiply that by infinity. This man has been in the presence of God. He has seen something of the glory of God. And he says there's nothing which is of any value by contrast with this. And nothing that I may receive from the whole universe is of any value compared with this. Now that hymn that we've just been singing, I think, puts that very well to us. Object of my first desire, Jesus, crucified for me. All to happiness aspire only to be found in thee, thee to please and thee to know, constitute my bliss below, thee to see and thee to love, constitute my bliss above. Listen, Lord, it is not life to live if thy presence thou deny. Lord, if thou thy presence give, tis no longer death to die. You see, this means everything to him. It is because God is who and what he is. And once a man has had any knowledge of God, there's nothing else that comes 
into comparison, everything else pales and recedes into utter insignificance. And what he says is this, oh, this knowledge is more precious to me than the whole of life, all of it put together. Well, let's go on from that. The second thing that makes him say this is this. That he has found a satisfaction in this intimate knowledge of God that completely satisfies him. My soul, he says, shall be satisfied if I have this again with marrow and fatness. That's a description of complete satisfaction. And that is what the Christian finds in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. A complete satisfaction. The world can't give it, but he gives it. He never fails. He satisfies the mind. He gives us understanding. Even in afflictions, we are not perplexed. We've got this total, whole view of life. We know his power and his purposes. Inspire. And hearer of prayer, thou shepherd and guardian of thine, I all to thy covenant care, both sleeping and waking, resign. If thou art my shield and my sun, the night is no darkness to me. He's got light, even in the darkness. Again, a great statement running through the Bible. And not only is his mind satisfied, his heart is satisfied. His heart is at rest. And there's only one place where the heart can ever be at rest. It is in this intimate knowledge of God. The peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds. In nothing be anxious. Doesn't matter where you are. Wilderness, dry and thirsty land, everything against you. Doesn't matter. In nothing be anxious. But in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You see, it doesn't mean that you understand your circumstances fully, but that you've got peace in spite of that. Once you are with God, you know that even though you don't understand, God understands. Like the little child, you see, perplexed and unhappy and miserable. The father comes or the mother comes, the little child is perfectly happy. Why? Has he got understanding? No, no. He trusts the father and mother. They understand. And so the true believer ever feels with God. He's got peace and rest in his heart, as well as understanding in his mind, and his conscience is at rest. He is now troubled about his past and his sins and the fear of death. He knows that all is well with his soul and well between him and God. If thou art my shield and my son... The night is no darkness to me, and fast as my moments roll on. They bring me but nearer to thee. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. He knows this. And that is why he says this is more valuable to him than anything else. And then you see he knows that this is something that can never change. Change and decay... In all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me, God, the unchangeable. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Not only that, he knows that God can vanquish all his enemies. He does think of them, but this is the answer to them. Those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. The mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. God is the all-powerful one. 
He can overcome all his enemies. Nothing is impossible with God. Therefore, surely the one thing that matters is to be in this relationship with God. And then I say, he knows this, that even should death come to him and the enemies be triumphant, it makes no difference to him. He will still be with God. He will see him in the morning. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Why? He shall behold the face of God. To die is gain. So that obviously this is of greater importance and of greater value to him than life itself, than the mere perpetuation of existence. Thy loving kindness is better than life. What else? Well, as the result of all this, of course, the Christian is a man who is filled with a spirit of thanksgiving and of praise and of joy. Listen to the psalmist. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. The king shall rejoice in God. Come, my dear friends. How do we face up to this particular test? You believe in God? Do you praise him? Do you thank him? Do you rejoice in him? The chief end of men is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying him? Do you thank him? Do you praise him? I'm not asking if you believe in him. I'm asking, do you know what it is at times for your heart to pour out in praise and in thanksgiving? David did. The children of God have ever done. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. And lastly, the Christian is a man who has a quiet confidence in God. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Thy right hand upholdeth me. That's the ultimate. A quiet confidence in God, knowing something of what it is to be under the shadow of his wings. Have you seen those little chicks playing about, picking here and there? Suddenly a dog or a cat appears, and the little chicks all rush together to get under the shadow of the wing of the hen, their mother. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Have you ever been there? Do you know what it is to feel the shadow of God's wing covering you, protecting you? Do you know that because you are his child, that nothing can harm you? That the very hairs of your head are all numbered? That he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you know that he upholds you? 
that he will uphold you and that he will never let you go. Very well, here I say, are the marks, the signs, and therefore the tests of the true men of God. If that was true of David, how much more so must it be true of us? Should it be true of us? In the light of Christ who has brought us nearer to him? Do we say thy loving kindness is better than life? Is our confidence in him? Is God the supreme object of our desire? Can you say something like this? O Lord, I would delight in thee and on thy care depend. To thee in every trouble flee my best, my only friend. Listen to this. When all created streams are dried, thy fullness is the same. May I with this be satisfied and glory in thy name. No good in creatures can be found but may be found in thee. I must have all things and abound while God is God to me. Is that your language? Do you say honestly this morning, Other refuge have I none hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stay. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. Can you say that? That's the test. Thy loving kindness is better than life. My soul longeth, my flesh crieth out, longeth for thee, the living God. Amen.